You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Locke Johnson, who's a Regents Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia, as well as a MIGS Distinguished Teaching Professor. He was a special assistant to the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Oversight from 1975 to 1976, which is also known as the Church Committee. He also served as staff director of the House Subcommittee on Intelligence Oversight from 1977 to 1979. And in 1995 and 1996, he worked with the chair of the Aspen Brown Commission on Intelligence. He's the author of over 200 articles and essays, and is the author or editor of 30 books on U.S. national security, including his latest book, Spy Watching, Intelligence Accountability in the United States. Well, welcome to SpyCast, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you very much. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Spy Museum, and I feel honored to be included in your, in your uh, podcasting event. Well, we're honored to have you, and we really appreciate you taking the time, because this is a really timely conversation. Uh, and, and so I want to ask you a straightforward question off the top. This book really seems to be a culmination of your career spent studying the IC. So why write this book now? How did it come together? Uh, beyond your expertise and experience, like what sources did you use for this book? Well, I spend a lot of time talking to people in the intelligence community, and, and we on both sides I, uh, assiduously avoid classified information, but we talk generally about the theory of intelligence and the history of intelligence and, and what's going on now within the, the, the boundaries of staying away from classified information. So the, the interview is my main methodology, but I've also had the good fortune to be on the inside occasionally. You mentioned at the beginning some of the positions I've held. So I've had an opportunity to be a participant observer, as the political scientist would put it, and see for myself how these agencies work. Not not inside the agencies, but but as a staff overseer in the White House and on Capitol Hill. And then, then I 
as a journal editor, my journal is it's entitled Intelligence and National Security, we get a lot of uh, literature, research literature coming in, and so I, I tap into that, and then I, I, it's such a fascinating topic, as you certainly know, I read everything I can on intelligence, so you put all that together, and that's, that's where my research uh, comes from, and you're right, this is a kind of a culminating work for me, I, ever since I was on the church committee, i, I became interested in intelligence accountability and had followed that over the last 40 years and 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 uh, read everything inside and as you know from the book there's, there's quite a comprehensive bibliography at the end i think just about every important work you can think of on accountability is listed there so so that's that's where the work comes from and my purpose was to step back and i'm now 75 years old and sort of uh, with that long perspective to step back and and see uh, what the state of accountability has been and, and is today. And I think this book succeeds on, on multiple levels. I, it's rare that you get a book that I could put in front of a complete novice in the intelligence world and they could read it cover to cover and get a much better appreciation of what's going on in the world of intelligence. But at the same time, someone like me, I've read a couple books on this in the past. Uh, and even I, you know, looked at this and, and got a ton of information from it that I wasn't familiar with before. So I think you find that great balance. In this well, that's book. very kind of you to say. I, I hope that's the case. And, and, you know, I've tried to be fair. I'm sure some people mentioned the book may not agree with that because I, I am critical of, of a few people who I think have strayed outside the boundaries of propriety and, and, and even the law in some cases. But generally, I, I hope you'll agree that the, the book really um, – emphasizes how important these intelligence agencies are. In fact, they're indispensable. So I, I spent some time going into all the good work they've done and how valuable they are and, and how America would be greatly endangered without them. But then I also try to point out that on some occasions, and they've been fairly rare actually, but on some occasions, some people, usually well-meaning people who just got a little carried away, have gone beyond what, what the law allows. Well, the debate about intelligence oversight really is fundamentally about concepts that have been debated in this country since its very founding. Would you agree that really looking at the, the, these tensions between things like civil liberties and security or openness and secrecy? Yes, you're right. And it's so hard to find the proper balance. And that's what the book is all about. And I think probably the balance shifts a little bit now and then uh, when we're under dire threat, such as during the 9-11 event, we, I think, move toward the direction of uh, making sure we're as efficient as we can chasing down our terrorists, and that's understandable. But well, the, the trick is to stay within the zone so we don't go, even in times of peril, beyond what our democratic structure allows, because then we don't have a democracy anymore. And that would be kind of ironic and rather dumb, actually, to try and uh, use these agencies to protect the United States and go so far as to damage what the United States stands for. So finding that balance is what it's all about. And I, I quote a number of intelligence people in there who I think have had some good insights into exactly what that balance is, including a few attorneys from the CIA. So uh, the, but most of the people, almost all of them, I think, in the intelligence community understand this need for balance and certainly understand where, where the bright line, lines are. But it, unfortunately, occasionally, as I referred to earlier, some people go, go too far. A lot of people would argue that, that a focus on accountability is done at the expense of efficiency. 
that the more accountable that we hold our intelligence community, the less likely it is that they can be efficient in doing their job. Is, is this is this a fair argument or are you saying that we can have both? I think we can have both, but I certainly understand the argument. But I, I would say that the, the founders, and if you go back and read their letters and so on, you'll see them saying that, that they weighed the, the merits of efficiency. And of course, nobody wants an inefficient government or an inefficient intelligence community. So efficiency is important. But what they said time and time again, I, I, I think I quote Brandeis, the great Supreme Court justice, sort of summing up this view that uh, there's something more important than efficiency, and that's liberty, and that's freedom. And so, you know, you, you can't have liberty and freedom without strong intelligence agencies that are effective, and a strong Pentagon, a strong military. So you need that, but, but you, again, Vince, it's back to what we were talking about earlier, finding that proper balance. And that's what lawmaking is all about. We, we put in, in legal code what we think the proper values are. But if you're just interested in, in efficiency, then you need someone like Mussolini, who famously supposedly got the trains running on time in Italy, which I must say is quite a feat. I don't think that's happened <laughs> since then. But, but that's not the main value. It's one of our values. But more important is the whole idea of, of freedom and liberty, I think. And, and that's what our Constitution is all about, to make sure that, as I explained earlier in the book, that no one person or institution becomes too powerful because that, that's very hazardous to democracy. But the great safeguard, the great gift of the founders to our country and to, to you and me and everyone since then has been the ability to check uh, power before it becomes out of control. And that's why we have separate institutions sharing power and we have, you know, since we learned in the fifth grade, checks and balances throughout our government. And that's our great glory. And we, we need to honor that. And, and I must say, that whole approach can be a little bit fragile. It can go down the drain. Go back and look at the Weimar Republic, and they had a lot of values like that, too. And they were afraid of concentrated power. And yet they let, let that philosophy slip through their fingers as, as Hitler took over. You talked about stopping things before they get out of control. And I think that the interesting that you lay out in this book, and I know you borrow this from another political scientist, but the concepts of police patrolling versus firefighting, I thought was a great way of laying out the different kinds of oversight. Yes, I like that metaphor too from a couple of political scientists, although I, I use it somewhat differently than they do. They, they go off in a different direction. I try to apply it to the intelligence agencies, but the basic concept I thought was a good one, and that's why I adopted it. One of my colleagues said, well, um, why are you using somebody else's theory? Well, the answer is, is because it's the best one I found out there, and I couldn't think of a better one myself. <laughs> I just like the way the metaphor sums up the, how there's got to be routine uh, oversight, but then occasionally things go off the track, and that's where you enter to a domain of firefighting. And ideally, what we'd like to do is avoid the firefighting, by which I mean the scandals and the huge intelligence errors that occasionally take place. You know, I, I think probably you and I would agree that it's impossible, since we're human beings, to uh, avoid all future scandals and all intelligence mistakes, but we can certainly work toward that goal. Well, the firefighting tends to bring in a different concept of oversight that is outside of the government. Uh, that's public oversight. That's media and the civilians being brought into the oversight role. Uh, is this a way that you've seen in the past, certainly, but possibly today as well, kind of force the issue of oversight, the, the concentrated coverage on some of these issues really brings changes with it? 
I think so. And, you know, I have a chapter on the role of the media in oversight. And my overall conclusion is that the media, despite sometimes uh, making errors and sometimes having, it, it seems, its own ideological bent, has been by and large fair and, and honored around the world as being probably the most open and, and independent media of any country. And I think it, it has brought our t attention to things that have gone wrong. And sometimes uh, before the Congress is, is aware of it or or willing to do anything about it. So one thinks of, of Operation Chaos, of the CIA spying on domestic citizens, which you and I know is a very rare thing. And it was unfortunate, but it hardly exemplifies what the CIA was doing broadly. This is a, a small component within the CIA, and it was uh, acting under the orders of, of Richard Nixon to, to do these things. But that came to light because of the leak, as you recall, to Cy Hearst, the New York Times reporter. And one can think of a number of things like that, the Pentagon Papers case and the role of the media. So the media is important, but I try to point out in my chapter that that's only one component of accountability, and, and Congress is a very important component, too. And then, you know, we have a number of uh, accountability agencies and entities throughout the government, including a very strong inspector general's office within the CIA and within the other intelligence agencies. So accountability, though far from perfect, and the book is all about how it still remains weak in many ways, uh, is, is quite robust compared to any other country. To one quick illustration, I don't know of another parliament in any other democracy in the world that has subpoena powers the way Ipsy and Sissy do, and, and that gives those two committees a, a lot of authority, not to mention the the whole budget power they have. If you look at the Oversight Committee in, in the British system, for example, it's quite weak. It doesn't have subpoena powers. It doesn't have budget powers. It's kind of a, a discussion panel more than anything. So for better or for worse, we've given Congress and some executive branch agencies a lot of authority within the, the um, accountability domain. You lay out the book in a, in a very effective way, I think, with kind of laying out the eras of intelligence oversight. As a historian, I love seeing things broken down into historic periods, so I'm very happy with that. And I think one of the first ones, not one of, the, the first one era of trust from 1946 to 1947, sorry, 1974, um, you also lay out as a kind of a posture of benign neglect. And, and right. I thought was interesting is this really kind of goes back to the founding of the country where the checks and balances that are so integral to the Constitution really never applied to secret work or intelligence work. No, that's true. And you can see why the argument was compelling that intelligence should be treated in an exceptional case because it is a sensitive area and they're very delicate operations and and good secrets that must be kept. But I think Lord Acton and James Madison and all these other people who looked at the concept of power would have warned us that, look, you can't have an exception to the rule that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, to, to quote Acton, of course. So I think we, we learned the hard way with Operation Chaos and the FBI's COINTELPRO that even though 99.5% of the intelligence community and, and the people within it are going to be honest, law-abiding citizens who would think of violating law, sometimes, for whatever reason, sometimes reasons can be complex and well-meaning, uh, things go awry, and it's at that point that intelligence can't be treated exceptionally. It has to be part of the U.S. government and, and face the same oversight procedures, budget control and hearings and so on that the Department of Agriculture or any other agency faces. 
Well, it seems clear that during the era of the Cold War, the, the fear of communism and the war against it basically gave the director of central intelligence unchecked power. Uh, I mean, to the degree that even if Congress uh, was, had some kind of oversight, which they didn't, they didn't really even want to know what CIA was doing. And sometimes the president didn't even want to know what CIA no, was up to. you're right. And the backdrop here was the speeches from Stalin and what a brutal person he was. And we had a quite a villain as an opponent in, in him, even though we were allies during World War II against the Nazis. So the backdrop was a rather frightening one with the Soviets setting off an atomic bomb in 1949 and developing rather awesome weapons. So I, I think we felt we had to really put forward our, our best effort when it came to finding out information about what they were up to. I mean, you could view the Cold War as really a struggle over information, the KGB trying to find out what we were doing, and we, CIA and its sister agencies trying to find out what they were doing. And and both sides, I thought, were, were pretty effective in reducing the, the Pearl Harbor possibilities of a surprise attack. We both had enough intelligence where I think it calmed down international affairs somewhat because we, we at least by the time the U-2 and satellite surveillance came around, we we didn't have to really worry that much about a, a Pearl Harbor uh, bolt of lightning out of out of the sky mm -hmm. attack. And so intelligence played an enormous role in that sense of, of making the world safer because of the at least somewhat uh, good transparency we had. I think we and the, the Soviets were quite aware of the kinds of weapons one another were making and where they were being placed. And if they were being mobilized, we would have known about it right away. So that, that was all valuable, I think. Let me ask you about the year of intelligence, 1975. This is when things really begin to change. Uh, you've already mentioned several of the events that led to the increased scrutiny over the intelligence community, whether it was COINTELPRO or chaos, um, you know, even things like the Pentagon Papers, which had very little to do with intelligence work. And Watergate kind of opened up a an a, American perception of mistrust of the government. Right. Um, and then the, the first thing, the first shoe to drop was the Hughes-Ryan Act, where uh, our audience may have heard this idea before, but covert action, which had been the most secret of the secret, where maybe even the president doesn't want to know because of plausible deniability, you're kind of forcing the issue with Hughes-Ryan and forcing the president to kind of take ownership of some of this covert action. Yes, yes. Well, I think the New York Times reporting on Operation Chaos and related matters, which really, as you know, was a result of a leak from someone or some group of people within the CIA, evidently, raised the question of, well, what do we know about these secret agencies? And evidently, we we didn't know enough, and we better have a closer look. So the Church Committee was, was created uh, in January 1975 by an overwhelming bipartisan vote. And the idea was to, to make sure we didn't have any more Operation Chaoses. And once we got into this, we, we realized that something even worse than Operation Chaos at the time, which after all was relatively limited, as James Angleton, a, a buddy of mine from those days, used to tell me all the time. And that was uh, the FBI's COINTELPRO, which was really pretty horrific, trying to persuade Dr. Martin Luther King to take his own life and, and ruining lives of those who were active in the civil rights movement or anti-war protesters. So it's good, I think, we found out about that, and Republicans and Democrats alike on the committee 
staff and members were rather shocked by some of these findings. And of course, the NSA was involved in Operation Minaret and Shamrock, which were dubious collection programs against American citizens. So all of this made us realize that this long era of benign neglect was probably a mistake. And you can see why we fell into that long era. We, you and I have talked about the Soviet threat and how real that was and how dangerous. But I think also when you look back at men like Alan Dulles and, and Richard Helms and Bill Colby and some of those people, those were really fabulous individuals, uh, intelligent and and patriotic and doing their best, their best uh, work to protect us. And so there was a, a willingness to put one's faith in them, I think. And then furthermore, members of Congress uh, have to run for re-election, and I think they were worried about being culpable if there was another Bay of Pigs and, and they had signed on to it. So for a lot of reasons, we had this era of benign neglect that, that, that you mentioned. But I think chaos, and after that, COINTELPRO and, and then uh, Minaret and Shamrock, and then the assassination plots that came to light, reminded us that we can't have exceptionalism for any part of the government. Checks and balances must be applied everywhere. And, and that's what brought about the dramatic change during what the CIA people often call the, the intelligence wars, and generally known as the, the year of intelligence. Let me ask you about the Church and Pike committees, because they're often mentioned together. Uh, and I think that's somewhat reductionist, certainly based on what I've read in your book, because Church and Pike seem like very different committees in the sense that Pike became increasingly political as time yeah. went on. Yes. Well, early, uh, I was Church's uh, designee, as we called them, which was really his top assistant. And early in the investigation, Church and Pike met together, uh, and they decided to, that uh, that divide up the turf because it's such a big mandate. and. One committee couldn't do everything. And Pike was particularly interested in analysis and intelligence eras, so Church let him take that, and Church was concerned about chaos and some of the charges of illegality, so he, he took that. And Pike, as you know, was a, was a Marine Corps air pilot once, and not really that involved in uh, uh, legal uh, analysis, whereas Church was an attorney like most of the senators are. And, and so that, that made a sensible division. And but the, the big difference, as you note, is that uh, the Pike Committee just never really controlled itself very well. We had very strict rules, particularly when it came to classified information. We had an early event, maybe in the first couple of weeks of the Church Committee, where one of our staffers, a very bright young fellow, stupidly uh, at the Hawk and Dove on Pennsylvania, <laughs> was discussing our work in a booth with, with his lunch mate, and there were two FBI guys in the next booth, just coincidentally, who I presume coincidentally, who uh, heard the conversation and reported Church Committee, and we fired him immediately and, and, and reminded everyone on staff that no one, no one could talk about these things outside of our corridors. So I think that set a tone, uh, and uh, we just held together and had more discipline. And I think Fitzwarts, our chief counsel, was really just a magnificent leader. I, I, I've known few people in my life who have the kind of leadership abilities that he has. And so he kept us all in reign as well. And, and Bill Miller, the staff director, was a longtime Hill person who realized the importance of, of discipline and, and taking this seriously. And, and above all, working with the intelligence agencies to the extent we could to improve the United States and its approach to 
to the whole question of protection through intelligence. Do you think the church committee reforms went as far as they could? Well, I, I think they, they did at the time. After all, they were quite bold. If you take the FISA legislation, for example, that was a huge step uh, toward bringing controls over electronic surveillance. And then even before the church committee got started, as you mentioned, Hughes-Ryan was passed, Hughes being a senator and Ryan being a member of the House, to do two things, really, make sure that all presidents in the future would officially approve a covert action, as you mentioned, no more plausible deniability, which I think was important because plausible deniability from the number one elected person in the country just doesn't make any sense in a democracy. The the buck stops there, and, and presidents should take responsibility for important policies. And then the second part, and this was taught almost revolutionary, and that is to report these covert actions in a timely manner to Sissy and Hipsy. So you can see uh, Hughes Ryan set the stage for being bold, and Church came along with, with FISA, and above all, I think, creating Sissy, and then a year later, uh, Hipsy was created in the House. These are bold measures, and, and one can only do so much in, at a time. After all, we were investigating the entire intelligence community. We had a mandate of initially 12 months and then it was stretched to 16. So we did as much as we could. And people were always telling us, well, look into CIA academic relations, look into CIA journalistic relations, look into missionaries and the role, uh, their relationship with the CIA. And, and you just couldn't do it. There's just too many other things to look at. So in the cliche, if you'll forgive me, we, we just, we did the best we could. Yeah. Let me ask you about the Intel committees themselves, about HIPSI and SSCI, because I, I was really, I hadn't heard of this before. I was amazed at your narrative of one of the first HIPSI meetings when members of the committee were questioning DCI Stansfield Turner. And yeah. this is where uh, HIPSI chair uh, Edward Bolin stopped the questioning because it, it got a little intense and said this was not the place to have a serious debate on covert action. And I just I thought of Dr. Strangelove, the whole you can't fight in here, this is the war room kind of thing. I mean, where else would you have a serious debate on covert action other than Hipsy? Yeah. Well, there were always two staffers in that room. I was one of them. My jaw almost hit the table. And it, it, that's where I slipped a note to Aspen at one of those meetings. And uh, when as you recall, we had a recorder, someone there to take verbatim record of what was going on. And Turner, uh, and I may be the only person left in the world who still likes Stan Turner, but I thought he was a terrific guy. Turner uh, uh, insisted on the reporter being taken out of the room for, for, for secrecy purposes. And Bolden went along with it and Astrid said, wait a minute, we need a record of these COVID action finding briefings so that a year from now we can go back and, and compare what's happening then to what happened, what, what we were promised earlier on. And uh, as you know, it was a fairly dramatic uh, moment where Boland, one of the mightiest members of the House, was taking on this relatively young member of Congress, Les Aspen, and Aspen won by one vote on that. And I think that was a historic moment in accountability because I think it is important to have a record of what the executive branch is, is promising to do in the domain of COVID action and other intelligence areas. So uh, you mentioned Ed Boland, and he is someone who was vehemently on the side of the intelligence community, but eventually people may have heard the Boland Amendment of Iran-Contra fame. He does come around to be much more critical of the intelligence community, and I want to ask you about that because you mentioned your relationship with Stansfield-Turner. I want to ask you about the personality of the DCI. How much does that matter? Because someone like Casey 
really stands out. Because his attitude on oversight was, I, I laughed out loud because you, you go through each of the DCIs and talk about your, your conversation with them. And the Casey one was very short. And to the point, and you know, this isn't an adult, this is an adult podcast, so you can say the word if you want to, but he has one sentence and it's pretty extraordinary. Yes. Well, as we know, Casey was known for scatological responses and he had a, he dropped the F-bomb on me when I asked him what the role of Congress should be in accountability. And he said it was basically blank to stay out of my business. And so that was an extreme uh, view on the topic, and as you know, sort of the hero in my book when it comes to a good attitudes about intelligence, accountability from the community point of view is, is Bob Gates, and you know, Bob Gates is no pushover, and and he, uh, no patsy to the U.S. Congress by any means, he knows how to stand up for himself now and, and when he was DCI, but he realized that Congress is part of the government and had a constitutional role and knowing what was going on and, and had the purse strings in his fingers. And so he, he, he uh, I think, worked closely with the Congress and, is, as you recall, had a wonderful relationship with Dave Bourne, who was chair of SISI at the time. So that's sort of a model of how things should work, but it's, it's unfortunately fairly rare. Personality, you're right, it's so important. There's a, a, a political scientist by the name of Harold Laswell, who was famous in the 20s and 30s, but it's forgotten now. But he wrote a lot about personality in politics. And one of the lines he, he wrote was that uh, political science without personality is taxidermy. And I think it is. You've got to look at the personalities of these people. And Casey was just, uh, I have no doubt, very smart and very patriotic and doing his best. But he was, he was just a, kind of an ornery individual and a strong believer in what I call the Dick Cheney school of thought on the presidency, and that is the president ought to have unbridled powers in the domain of intelligence and national security generally, and he he pushed that to an extreme. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler, You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Let me ask you about FISA because FISA has been in the news lately. Um, and uh, I think one of the most tired and worn out arguments against FISA is the success rate. And I've been I, everyone who brings this up to me, I, I have the, the same answer to uh, people are probably sick and tired of me talking about the fact that FISA's success rate is so high for certain reasons. But maybe they'll believe you uh, if you explain why the FISA success rate is so high. Well, I, I, one could uh, naturally be skeptical when 99% of all warrant requests are being approved. It makes it sound as though FISA, the FISA court is a rubber stamp. But I really think it is true, having looked into this and having talked to other people who have studied it as well, that the various agencies, CIA, FBI, others who will bring the FISA warrant requests, really scrub these requests uh, hard. And there's a lot of interaction between the FISA court 
and its staff and the intelligence agencies during the process of developing a warrant request to, to work out what, what's acceptable and, and what's appropriate under the law and so on. So by the time the actual request comes, oh, the, the, most of the work has been done already to make sure it's sound and, and reasonable. So I believe that these warrants are passed because they, they deserve to be passed. They've been carefully scrubbed and uh, fall within the framework of probable cause and, and honor the original FISA law. It's almost a wonder that it's not 100%. I mean, how much do you have to screw up with the process that's in place right now? <laughs> really? I mean, really? <laughs> well, I mean, at this point, I mean, FISA has been around for decades. At this point, the lawyers and the people who work for justice and other places understand completely yeah. what is required of them for a FISA warrant to go through. Right. And at the same time, even if they don't, the informal process of back and forth will shape it into something that works. Well, you'd think so, although remember, we're, we are fallible human beings. Yeah. And let's say out of 100 cases with 100 lawyers, you might find one or two who are incompetent or don't write it up well or don't understand the whole procedure the way they should. So there's bound to be some weak FISA requests to come up from now and then, and that's why they're not figure's not 100%. But what I find particularly alarming is when some people in high office have decided that FISA doesn't matter and have completely bypassed it. And in my book, I, I, I talk about General Hayden out at NSA. And, you know, I, like everyone else, I've seen Hayden on TV, and he's very effective. And, again, he's a well-meaning person with a lot of experience, and he's sort of avuncular. And I bet he's just a wonderful person. But when he went from the NSA over to the White House to talk to President George W. Bush and, and Cheney right after 9-11 about uh, the restrictions on the NSA as a result of FISA. And Dick Cheney said to him, don't worry about restrictions, just go out and do what needs to be done. And he saluted and did exactly that. I thought that was a key moment in intelligence history and a huge mistake on behalf of General Hy uh, Hayden. What if he had said and said, well, well sir, uh, Mr. President and Mr. Vice President, I, I understand what you mean. We've, we've got to find these terrorists, but there is a law. Why don't you get that law uh, either amended or repealed? And uh, I think maybe you'd agree with me that if President Bush had gone up or sent Cheney up to the Hill and said, look, we've got a serious problem here because FISA was written back in 1978 and it's 2001 and it's antiquated in some of its sections. Can we get them appealed immediately? That would have happened so fast it would have been dizzying because Congress wanted to cooperate too. But instead, Hayden went back and talked to his lawyers at NSA and they agreed with Cheney that Article 2 of the Constitution allows the president to do whatever he wants when it comes particularly to national security. And that's just flat wrong. Well, and, and I think you make the point, and, and others have it well, that if that request had been made on 9-10-2001 or on 9-10-2012, it's unlikely that the NSA director would have acquiesced to that. I mean... I, I suppose, I don't know, sometimes people when they get in the Oval Office lose their composure and their judgment and kind of melt and do whatever the president and vice president want them to do. So I, I hope that, that you're right about that. But, but again, it gets back to that concept of fear that you raised earlier, which is so important. When we are under attack, understandably, we're fearful and, uh, and we go to excesses. One of the worst uh, chapters in our history is when FDR 
put Japanese Americans in, in camps out in Utah and California and other places. And that's a black stain on our history and really didn't need to happen. We had Japanese Americans fighting bravely, like Daniel Inouye of Hawaii, the senator, who was wounded in World War II. So Japanese Americans uh, could have been handled in a much different way. That was a counterintelligence case, and you have to look at the, 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 the people within that group who may have been suspicious for one reason or another, not herd them all into camps. So in the crucible of fear, the, the Constitution begins to take on malleable proportions, unfortunately. So the issue of the partisanship of FISA has come up recently. Uh, and ironically, it's uh, an argument that makes very little sense to me because when you talk about partisanship of FISA, it's actually the ability of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to put people on the FISA court, which uh, is probably the partisan part of it, not the fact that the the judge in question of the kind of the conversation having today was appointed to the federal bench by President Obama, but was appointed to the FISA court by Chief Justice John Roberts. Right. That seems to be the potential partisan problem with FISA is John Roberts being relatively young will probably be able to control the FISA courts for the next two decades. Right. No, I think you make a wonderful point, Vince. And in my book, I, I, that's one of the matters I discuss and how I think that needs to be reformed. I mean, I, I personally think the world of uh, Justice Roberts, I think he's one of the best we've ever had. But but just the procedure of having, having him have that authority alone is, is inappropriate, I think. And it's only natural for Roberts with a Republican background to, most of the time, pick Republicans to, to serve on that court. And we need more of a partisan balance of people who serve on that court. So, so we can certainly fix that. What's upsetting about this whole FISA business right now with respect to the Steele dossier and related matters is that uh, Representative Nunes is I think on berserk on, on partisanship, and he's. I mean, there's always going to be some partisanship, and I. I think Newt Gingrich, my fellow Georgian, bears a lot of guilt in making us way too partisan as a nation. Before that, as, as you may recall, matters on Sissy and Hipsy were voted on unanimously in almost all cases. This is uh, before 1992, so from 1976 to 1992. The name of the game in Sissy and Hipsy was bipartisanship, with one exception, and that is the the effort of the Reagan administration to conduct covert action in Nicaragua. That really split along partisan lines. But that, but otherwise, the, the committees got together well, and that's gone down the drain. I think in part because Ginrich has has made Washington such a harsh place to be, and such a his theory was attack, 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 and finally maybe the public will turn against the Democrats. And it worked. I must say, it worked out for him. But it really poisoned the well, I think, in Washington. So now we find that Nunes has, has gone off the deep end, I would say, and trying to use uh, a, a partisan advantage. And the worst thing about it, I believe, is that people who want to block the Democrats from uh, declassifying their rebuttal to the memo that Nunes had declassified. I mean, it seems to me fairness would allow both sides to present their point of views once classified material was scrubbed out of the documents. How much of the partisanship we're dealing with right now is an over-reliance on using the Gang of Eight or even the Gang of Four? Well, I think the Gang of Eight is a wonderful concept. Uh, it was passed in the 1980 Intelligence Oversight Act, and the, the idea was that the White House, the executive branch, 
should report on all important intelligence activities to Sissy and Hipsy. Uh, out of a sense of fairness, uh, out of the, the notion that Congress and the executive branch were equal partners, but in times of emergency, where you didn't have time to report to the full membership of Sissy and Hipsy, you'd, you'd report to the top leadership of the Congress and the House and those two committees, the Gang of Eight. So I think that's fine, and I think that that helped uh, dampen down partisanship. But the problem is the executive branch, and I'm talking about Democrats and Republicans alike, have all too often ignored the Gang of Eight provision and have instead defined it as a Gang of Four, really limiting the reporting requirement. And the Gang of Four exists nowhere except in the imagination of presidents in the executive branch. It's not a part of a law. Or even a gang of two, whisper in the ear of the Sissy and Ipsy chairman, or a gang of zero, don't tell anybody at all what you're doing. So I think when you've got a law like the 1980 Intelligence Oversight Act, and repeat it again in the 1992 Intelligence Oversight Act, which underlines the importance of reporting to the full membership of both committees and to the gang of eight in times of emergency, but only for two days after which you then report to the full committees. That's very important and unfortunately has been sometimes ignored. Well, you talk about reporting and you have an interesting statistic in here about the fact that reporting didn't exactly become automatic even after these oversight acts. Uh, you have a statistic here between uh, sorry December of 2001, so right after 9-11, and April of 2002, the agencies only had an 8% compliance rate of reporting to HIPC and SSCI when asked for particular information? Yes, yes, that's, that's rather alarming, I would say. And, you know, Jim Clapper is a very good friend of mine. We went to high school together, and, and we often get together. I was talking to him about that, and, and his point of view is, yes, the community ought to be doing better than that. But at the same time, the Congress has levied onto the community so many frivolous and almost ridiculous reporting requirements, uh, you know, having to do with technicalities about satellites and so on, that you can see why the executive branch doesn't have the time or the inclination to respond in, in every instance. So again, it's one of those situations where the executive and legislative branch, like mature adults, have to sit down and say, look, you're asking too much here, and here are the reasons why we don't want to report on that. But of course, here are the key elements that you need to know, and we'll, we'll be faithful in reporting to those to you in a timely way or in times of emergency to the Gang of Eight and later to the full committees. I mean, that's the kind of dialogue that has to happen. Well, one of the major uh, changes in the intelligence community that most of our listeners will at least have been alive during was after uh, 9-11. was a result of the Keene Commission, which is more popularly known as the 9-11 Commission. And that's the IRTPA, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. Right. Um, you don't seem to be a fan of this, particularly the office of the ODNI. Well, I, I like the, the notion that originally stimulated the passage of that act in uh, December of 2004. And that notion was the community before 9-11 had been too fragmented and the goal of all source fusion had not been properly uh, pursued. Uh, as the Kane Commission put it, we, we need better sharing of intelligence. And you and I know that flies in the face of compartmentation and counterintelligence requirements, so there's a real tension there. But the general idea that it'd be great to present the president and the PDB or other documents with a truly holistic view from all 
16 agencies melded together so the president gets, has got the best information possible. That's, that's a very important concept. But uh, I would say that uh, we've, we've had trouble achieving that, and um, we have an ongoing effort to try and overcome the stovepiping in the community. Well, you mentioned James Clapper, because I think that he may be the anomaly as, as DNI, uh, someone who had the power and the respect within the intelligence community to be a relatively strong DNI, and I have, I have nothing against Director Coates or any any of the ones that preceded Clapper, but it seems like you need to have somebody who not only has close personal ties to people within the agency, but somebody who has the gravitas to kind of put their foot down when necessary. Well, I agree, and and if I could uh, approach that by returning to your previous question about the IRPTA Act, uh, the the intention was good to, to overcome this, these centrifugal forces by having a stronger intelligence chief, which would be called a director of national intelligence. But the Pentagon ambushed that legislation as it passed through the the Congress. And of course, Alan's book, Blinking Red, is a wonderful case study of that. And so what we ended up with is a DNI office, but one bereft of budgetary authority, by and large, over all the 16 agencies, and bereft of uh, appointment and firing powers, which are so critical, I think, to overcoming the stovepipe problem. Now, Jim comes along, and he's been in the intelligence community for 50 years, and he was a mentor to some of the program managers running the 16 agencies. So there's a very friendly, cordial relationship there, and and Jim, Jim didn't need the formal powers of hiring and firing and and budget control, although he certainly could have used it, but I'm sure he wished he had them. But, but at least he could overcome that by through friendship and persuasion and controlling and, and leaning on, on years of, of getting along well with some of the program managers. But but when you don't have that 50 years of experience and you're Dan Coates, again, I have nothing against him. He's got an outstanding record in many ways, and so do the other uh, DNIs before Jim Clapper, but they simply didn't have those connections. So I think you're absolutely right that you can't have a DNI work in, unless one of two things happen, and ideally both of them. One would be putting in that office a really seasoned intelligence officer who's been around a while and knows all these people, like Jim Clapper, or two, you amend the, the original act and give the DNI office the kind of authority that badly needs, and that is a budget powers and hiring and firing authority. And I think if you really want to have a, an effective intelligence chief in this country, and I, I'd say we desperately need one, you would have a combination of those, those two, an experienced person in the office who has those powers that I mentioned. Well, do you see this as a dynamic process? Because the I can't imagine the DCIA is going to allow for any any power to be stripped further than it already has. Or, or do you see this as, as, as a story? And I think back to the CIG in 1946 of a, almost a transitory agency between OSS and CIA. Is the ODNI more of that? And maybe I think so. I think it's evolving, and I think it's become actually better every year. Uh, when Clapper was in office, and uh, he made some reforms that are, I think are really important. But 
eventually, I think we're going to have to give more legal authority that, to that office and, and more respect to the office. Let, let me remind you of the case where Leon Panetta, who's DCIA, uh, fought uh, Dennis Blair, the DNI at the time, over who should name COSs in foreign countries. Well, Panetta fought fiercely to keep that as a CIA duty and won the battle in, in the Oval Office because he's good friends with with uh, the President Obama, who sided with Panetta. But I thought Dennis Blair at the time had a good argument that you take a place like Australia, which is so SIGINT oriented, that it might make sense to have a COS there who's from the NSA. Mm -hmm. So it really would depend on what's going on in the country and who the most logical person would be. But Blair lost that battle. I think that's one of the reasons he left fairly early. So we've got a, a kind of mythical intelligence chief here. The United States doesn't really have an intelligence chief, at least one that's beyond uh, uh, cosmetics. And when Jim Clapper, with all of his experience and his personality and his his way of getting things done, uh, I mentioned he's a friend of mine, so I'm being a little bit biased here, but I think many people would give Jim Clapper high marks. When you no longer have someone of that stature and experience, that office is just not going to work. And and I'd be very surprised if Dan Coates stays in there for more a year, more than a year, a year and a half. Let me bounce to a completely different topic because one thing that really stood out in your book uh, was your conversations with James Angleton because uh, from m many of us who do intelligence history, he's been caricatured as a villain. And maybe yeah. caricature is the wrong word. Maybe he's been portrayed right. fairly or unfairly as a villain. You spent a lot of time with him in, in your past. Right. Is it safe to say it's, his his background, his personality is more nuanced than what we've we've seen, uh, at least in, in the kind of conventional wisdom of who Angleton is? Well, I think so. And we can all understand the kind of odd and um, unacceptable side of, of Jim Angleton, by which I mean his his mole hunting inside the CIA, often based on innuendo and, and ruining many careers because he suspected people of being uh, a Soviet mole, but, but really didn't have the evidence to prove it. And many of these people, for all I know, all of them were completely innocent. But at the same time, uh, Jim Anglin caught some moles in the CIA, and you have to admire his attitude, as any CIA chief should have, of suspecting almost anyone uh, within the bounds of the law, uh, looking into what their activities are. And he lost sight of that that approach, and he, he wasn't careful enough, and he became a kind of Joe McCarthy inside the CIA in some ways. So, so that's the, the, the dark side of Angleton. The sad side of Angleton is the way he was fooled by uh, Kim Philby, and that's a very embarrassing moment for him, of course, and that probably drove him in the direction of being uh, far too suspicious and, and far too willing to accuse people of maybe being another Philby or, or someone else who shouldn't be trusted. But but then uh, on the other side, you, when you get to know him, you, you realize what a, a cultured individual he was and how dedicated he was. And after all, he was a CIA chief, CIA chief for 20 years out at Langley and did a lot of good things during that period. So I, I guess like all of us, although in his case more extreme than, than most of us, we're complex and we have different dimensions and sometimes we fail and sometimes we succeed. And, and I think we sometimes need to remember more of the good things about Angleton, even though we certainly 
mentioned uh, the little, the horrible things he did too. Well, it, it's clearly a counterfactual, but it's hard to ignore the fact that when he leaves, all hell breaks loose and there's mole on top of mole on top of mole yeah, in CIA. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you remember George Calaris, but he took over after Angleton. And talk about a grand individual. This guy was just so smart and dedicated and just a wonderful person. And he really cleaned up the Angleton shop, the, the CIA staff, by organizing the files better. It was all too much Angleton-driven. and uh, but, but he made it much more systematic and and scientific in a sense. But unfortunately, Colby, who was DCI at the time, um, decentralized counterintelligence. And Claris went along with that. And, and so counterintelligence lost a lot of focus out of the CIA. And it, it wasn't viewed as important as it used to be. So that was unfortunate. I think more recently, people have realized that counterintelligence, counterterrorism is, is extremely important, maybe in some ways, maybe the most important thing we do. And so it's been given better structure more recently. So I think we learned some lessons from from the Angleton period and even from the Colby period with, with the mistake of, of decentralizing CI too much. Let me wrap up this conversation with asking you some conclusions, some kind of broad questions uh, uh, you know, that stem from the book and from your, your experience. And so I'm going to start with the uh, broader oversight question because there, there are clear limitations on oversight and you lay them out in the book very well. Would you argue that we're better off now than where we were before 1975? Oh, I think so. I think that you'll find within the intelligence communities too, most thoughtful people agreeing with that. Because, you know, part of the problem with the intelligence community prior to 1975, it was unclear exactly where the boundaries were and what the expectations of the American people were when it came to probity and uh, what what the agencies should and shouldn't be doing. So I think the church committee uh, helped uh, define that better, sort of broad intelligence under the framework of the Madisonian principles. And from the efficiency point of view, I don't think we've really lost any efficiencies. I, you know, if you look at our, our big intelligence mistakes from an analytic point of view recently, that is 9-11 and WMDs in Iraq, that really didn't have anything to do with church committee reforms. Now, some people say, including some people I admire immensely, like George H.W. Bush that and James Baker, that the church committee uh, really hobbled the intelligence agencies. And so what they are saying is that the changes we made back in 1975 somehow crippled the agencies in 2011, which doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, it seems to me that there are a lot of reforms uh, that took place during that period, a lot of different leaders. And so I don't think you can trace back the weaknesses in those two case studies to the church committee. In fact, many books, including some I've written, have talked about why we failed on 9-11 and, and, and in Iraq, and it has nothing to do with the church committee. So I think that it, was, it was useful to remind people that power is a corrupting influence, and let's don't have power floating off on its on its own in some hidden part of government. Let's, let's make sure that even the hidden part of government obeys the basic principles of democracy. Have the have the instantaneous re-election cycles, particularly in the House, made it very difficult for House members to keep attention on their jobs? Oh, I think so, Vince. I think you really you bring up a key point here in one of my arguments. It's not particularly original, but I'm just trying to emphasize it, is that members of Congress are so involved in fundraising for re-election, you know, on the telephone four to six hours a day raising money, 
that that takes away from their dedication to uh, oversight and other duties on Capitol Hill. That's why in the last chapter of the book, I, I suggest that Congress needs help, and the help takes would take the form of a kind of an outside commission, a permanent commission that could assist the Sissy and Hipsy, not take their place, but assist them on some projects, particularly long-term uh, uh, investigative chores, which those two committees I don't think are are well versed to, to engage in because of the partisan problems, because of re-election uh, challenges and so on. So I, I'm calling for a little bit of help to these two committees in the form of an of a added commission. That will make eyes roll and, uh, and, and uh, foreheads furrow, I think, in some quarters to think of yet another agency being created. But I, I view this as rather a small organization that could just, just help these committees do their oversight job better and also work closely with the intelligence agencies to make sure that they have their day in court and their, their side of things is fairly represented. Is a major problem the current split between the authorizing and appropriating committees? That seems to be really problematic. Well, I think the whole history of Congress is one of, of having those two phases, and to me that makes sense. The problem has been, I think, is that the, the authorized committees, Sissy and Hipsy, have had some personality problems with the appropriations committees. So again, we, we've got to have some mature leadership on the Hill to make sure that that, that works well. But, but I, I sort of like the idea of authorizing committees going through the details and, and suggesting a budget ceiling, then the appropriators coming by who have a broad picture of appropriations for the United States and, and suggesting what, what makes sense and what doesn't. That, that works in every other area. Uh, with some rough spots occasionally, but generally it works. It's it's only fallen down in the intelligence domain, and, and that was only for about five years. That was unfortunate, but now it seems to be back on track and working better. But again, you mentioned personality, which is also always so important. If the chairs of the appropriations committees and the authorizing committees have respect for one another and meet with one another and understand how the Congress has worked for over 200 years, then I, I think the process works pretty well. Let me wrap up with a final question about term limits, because I think this is a, a kind of a key question talking about personalities, particularly how partisan and political things have gotten today. It's very hard for a junior member of either of these committees to work up to leadership unless they're in Congress for 30 years. But there, on the other hand, you don't want people rotating out of these committees the minute they learn a little bit about the intelligence world. So how do you how do you find that happy medium? How do you? How do you elect someone to Congress and they would be almost a perfect chair for one of these committees or, or part of the leadership because of their background, because of their understanding, but they're never going to get to that level because they're 30th on the list of seniority. Right. right. Well, it, it's got to be some flexibility. Take, for example, the Armed Services Committee uh, in the House of Representatives. It had some tired old men at the top uh, during the, the 70s and and uh, Les Aspen, who was a real intellectual whiz, uh, was able to convince the members of the committee to to have him uh, skip over two or three of these senior people and become a more dynamic chair. And of course, there was blood on the floor when that battle took place. But at the end of the day, um, Aspen was the chair, and it was a much more di- dynamic organization. But for the most part, this idea of seniority and working your way up to the top does make sense because you become more and more expert and, and uh, uh, understand what's going on in the executive branch that 
that much better until you finally become chairman, and then you're really in a good position to, to be a great leader. And it's true, sometimes it can take a long time, but I think the, the number is more probably in the realm of 15 to 18 years these days, and in fact, sometimes faster. When I think of uh, the fellow from Tennessee, Cork, who became chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, I think that only took him about four or five years to do that. So it's a little bit faster these days than it used to be. But you want someone at the top who's experienced. And if you get stuck with someone who's asleep at the wheel, in fact, literally in some cases, in hearings, these people will nod off in their 80s or so. But I think the the members of the committees have realized, well, if we have someone like that, we're going to vote them out. Are you heartened about what you're seeing right now from SSCI and equally disheartened about HIPSI? Yes, I am, because it's marvelous to see Warner and Burr, the respective uh, Democratic and Republican leaders of SISI, working together. And I, I have to admit, I'm a little surprised by that, because I, I viewed Burr as, as extremely partisan. But I think that maybe since it's his last term, evidently, and, and since Warner's a pretty easy guy to work for, they, they've decided to put bipartisan, to put partisanship aside to the extent they can. But Nunes, I, I, you know, I hate to say anything negative about anyone, but this is not a good member of Congress, and he's abusing his powers, and, and it's really unfortunate to see. I think the committee's really got to say, this guy should not be our leader, and they're going to have to bounce him off that committee eventually. Well, and Hipsy has never had necessarily a great reputation, um, but I, I look back to the Senate torture report and SSCI, that was incredibly partisan, where not a single Republican voted for the Senate so-called torture report. Right. And they seem to have repaired that, that, fr- that friction and the, the, the schism between the Democrats and Republicans on SSCI, at least for non-terrorism-related issues. Yeah, it looks that way, and I hope it's not a facade. We, you and I don't know what's going on inside there, but let's hope that Warren and Burke can keep it together because there are unfortunately natural uh, uh, tensions between the two parties at lower levels as, as they are in Hipsy, but, but so far the leadership has been, has been marvelous. And, and I think it shows that these committees can work. In fact, you know, uh, the, the Sissy also put together a study on Benghazi, and that went to the floor for a vote, and I think the vote was 99 to zero in favor of it. So if you do a really good report on something that's fair, empirical, and allows all sides to be heard, you're going to get some support on Capitol Hill. And that's what Warner and Burr have been able to do. But the Benghazi report shouldn't be confused with the House one that was a really a partisan attack against Hillary Clinton. This was one in the Senate that was much more fair. Well, the book is Spy Watching, Intelligence Accountability in the United States. The author is Locke Johnson. Locke, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here today. We truly appreciate it. Well, it's my honor, and I've heard about the new spy museum building, and I can't wait to be there. Best of luck with that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. 
we here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.